You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Several years ago now, I uh, was invited over to a Sunday uh, lunch with a family. And uh, it's a family that used to live, raised their kids, in fact, in a teepee. Uh, I was somewhat disappointed that they had upgraded to a house, but it was a house not much larger uh, than the teepee, and it was, uh, it was very cozy, very warm, very intimate. It's a little space that wrapped around a stovepipe that went up, and to uh, have five of us gathering around a table required the use of the largest space in that house. We huddled together, and we just had a great afternoon together. And I, I, I will always remember what the father of this family said to me when he quoted an English proverb, and he said, George, we've learned that enough is as good as a feast. And I thought, yeah, that is so true. Enough is always as good as a feast. And I said to myself, that's the way I want to live my life, with the feast of enough. But the question comes, how much is enough? When will you recognize it when you see it in your life? And that's a question I think that we wrestle with perennially. How much is enough? I came across a few years ago a private memorandum that a young man wrote to himself in December of 1868. This is what he writes. 33 and an income of $50,000 per annum. By this time in two years, I can so arrange all my business as to secure at least $50,000 per annum. Beyond this, never earn. Make no effort to increase fortune, but spend the surplus for benevolent purposes. Cast aside business forever, except for others. Settle in Oxford and get a thorough education, making the acquaintance of literary men. Man must have an idol. And he says, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, should I be careful to choose that life which will be the most elevating in its character? To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares... And with most of my thoughts, wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. That's what he wrote, but it never happened. The man was Andrew Carnegie. And he would press on with those same anxious thoughts and that same labor and that same lifestyle that he thought in two years he would be able to set aside for something he described as more elevating. Not that he wasn't a very generous man, for he was, but couldn't seem to find when he had come into enough. What is enough? Well, Jesus answers that question in our text this morning, but he's not going to answer the question in terms of quantity, which may be a disappointment to us. He will answer the question in terms of spirituality. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and uh, read verse 24 together. Shall we stand? You'll find this on page 787 of the Pew Bible. Our text is but one verse this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you think it might be true, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. 
No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Those words, heaven and earth will pass away, uh, come from the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon in which Jesus speaks on a hill seated to his disciples and many other followers. This, a little bit of wisdom, no one can serve uh, two masters. And he describes in this verse the greatest threat to the feast of enough. And he describes it as a spirituality. A spirituality that's captured by a single word in our text. It's the last word in the sentence. Wealth. Verse 24, wealth. And even our uh, own translation, the New Revised Standard Version, puts a footnote on the word. And if you look at the bottom of the page, you should see the word mammon. This is the word that Jesus uses. Mammon is an Aramaic word. And, And Jesus would have spoken... The whole sermon in Aramaic. But for some reason, the New Testament writers did not want to translate the word mammon. They just left it as it was. They used Greek letters to transliterate an Aramaic word. Why? Why would they let it stand? Even the King James Version won't translate the Greek into English and just leaves it there. Mammon, I think the Revised Standard Version the same. New American Standard, just leave it as mammon. The uh, New International Version, which I know some of you read, will, will translate it money, but will capitalize the M. Why? Well, this word describes uh, for Jesus and for us the spirituality of money. And uh, there's a caution here. So I want to uh, discuss with you two aspects of mammon. And then finally, a liberating alternative. It's that invitation that Jesus gives us that lies behind the warning. First, uh, mammon, one of two aspects. The first is this, mammon is wealth as relationship. Relationship. That is to say, Jesus personalizes, personifies uh, our wealth. He uses a personal name for it. You may remember this, uh, the time when Jesus goes across Lake Galilee to the area of Gerasene, and there's a demoniac there, and uh, this man's demon-possessed. And they ask, what is your name? And the, the demon speaks out and says, we are legion, for we are many. And again, the word legion is capitalized in our translations to suggest that it seems that the demon has taken this as a name, a personal name. And in the same way, the The translator, the writers, uh, those who give us record of Jesus' teaching here want us to understand Jesus is not just talking about a thing. He's talking about a personal power, a living force when we understand what our money is. Wealth always gets very uh, personal. I'm told there was a lawyer who was just getting out of his car, opened the door, and another car came speeding by and just ripped the door right off of his BMW. When the police came, they found this guy absolutely outraged. Look at what that idiot did to my BMW. You know, and the officer said, you lawyers are so materialistic. You didn't even notice that the guy took off your left arm as well. (laughs) And the lawyer looks down, sure enough, he says, oh my gosh, where's my Rolex? (laughs) Sometimes our money gets right inside of us. It becomes very personal. 
why would Jesus give wealth a personal name? Well, I think he wants to turn our assumptions about money on its head. By the way, when he speaks of mammon wealth, he's not just talking about the money you have, but he's talking about the money you want to have. Mammon. What do we assume about money that he wants to turn on its head? The first thing is this. We assume that money is a thing. We assume that money is an object. It's an impersonal thing. It's a thing you wouldn't give a name to. It's an it. But as we look at this text, and you could see it better in Greek, verse 24, <clears throat> the pronouns are all personal pronouns. He, not, not uh, it. The uh, pronouns devoted to the one, despise the other. These are masculine singular pronouns in the Greek that Matthew gives us. Mammon and money is not a thing. It's, a, it's, it's an it. It's a he. It's something with a name. We think we have an I-it relationship with our wealth. That is, it's inanimate, willless, static. And we govern over it. We rule it. We use it. We manage it. We do things to it. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. You have a personal relationship with your wealth. It's not an I-it relationship, as the great um, theologian Martin Buber would say. It's an I-thou relationship. See, with an I-it relationship, there's one object and one subject. There's only one will in the equation. With an I-thou relationship, there are two subjects, two centers of will, two powers, and with whom we must... Negotiate. Jesus is saying, your whole life can be a negotiation with this personal power, mammon. Every day, every waking minute, you can negotiate, you can relate to very personally. This is why, as I said last week, uh, we are very reluctant to talk about our personal finances with anyone. I think it's like, you know, when you first fall in love with someone, you've got a romantic attachment to another person. Very reluctant to describe that to anyone else because it says so much about you. We're deeply intimate. We're deeply vulnerable. And we want to keep this romance to ourselves. So we don't talk about our relationship with mammon. But Jesus forces it out into the open. Uh, we are as clueless about our relationship with money as some guys are about their relationship with their girlfriends. right? And if he's lucky, she'll be generous enough someday to sit him down and say, we need to talk about this relationship and the expectations we have. You know, guys, you just call this define the relationship, DTR. Or uh, as Ray says, it's a come to Jesus moment. And here Jesus is saying, I want you to be very clear about this relationship that you're having. Let me define it for you. It's personal. It's the first reason Jesus names this personally. The second is, not only does he want to overturn our assumption that money is a thing, he wants to overturn our assumption that money is a thing that we use. That we use. Notice, uh, very surprisingly, uh, Jesus doesn't say, use money as long as you use it well. Just be the master of it. No. In the little sentence Jesus gives us, we are uh, the slave, and our wealth, mammon, is the master. It's a little minor deity Jesus is describing money. You will serve it. It's not so much that you deploy it, that, that you use it, that you allocate it, that you strive for it, that you do anything at all with it. This is a person 
that does things with you, that will take you with him, that will engage you in his service, that will make you complicit with its will, its desired outcomes. That's a different way of looking at money than I do. It's the master-slave relationship. This helps us to understand, or me at least, why it is that there's no middle ground. You know, when I first read this passage, I go, I don't think I believe this. No one can serve two masters. I mean, look at my week. It's all about serving multiple masters, right? I mean, I've got the soccer uh, masters. I've got the work masters. I've got the relationship masters, the health masters. And my week is really just a negotiation among all of these different masters. And yours is too. But Jesus would say, those aren't masters, those are priorities, and they're important things. But there's something very different when I talk to you about God and I talk to you about mammon. These are beings that claim ownership. That's the surprise, is that we will be owned by, that we will belong to one of these two masters. And the reason you can't serve both of them, the reason you can't straddle the fence or blur the difference or try to appease them both is that they don't like each other particularly well. And God is saying, I don't go into joint venture deals with mammon. And mammon is saying, I've got an allergic reaction to this God. So both of them, these two masters, are rivals of one another and they will not allow those whom they own to compromise at all. So Jesus takes our assumptions about wealth and he turns them upside down. It's a personal relationship you're having. It's one in which you are the subordinate party. You are, uh, you are a servant of that. Now, in giving money a name and doing just these two things, uh, he does what we oftentimes do with names, and that's we create an attachment. We create a bond. Um, I'm told that farmers don't name the animals that they're going to uh, sell off you know, for bacon. If you're going to call something lunch, you don't call it Wilbur. Um, <laughs> so I'm thinking about you know, our pets. We have very personal attachments to our pets. We love them, and we know that they love us as well, unless they're cats. But we bring them home... <laughs> And the Hinmans have asthma and allergy, you know, so we don't have big pets. We stay at the level of mice, you know, and so we brought uh, Cheddar and Quick home from the pet store one time to mice, if you couldn't tell, and uh, we didn't know anything about pets, so we took the little sheet, the instruction sheet that comes home, and we're pouring over the sheet, you know, as we, as we figure out how we're going to care for these. And so I thought, you know, um, Jesus is suggesting that we uh, relate to our money in a similar way. So I thought I would write for us some instructions for the care and feeding of our mammon. Okay, so here there are five that I, uh, that I suggest for us. Um, so it, the, the sheet would begin, Congratulations on the acquisition of your new friend, mammon. You're beginning a rewarding relationship that promises you years of fulfillment. Pay close attention to his care. The more you attend to his needs, the more he will attend to yours. Here are five basics to get you started. First, feeding. The question is not what you feed your mammon, but how. Mammon will eat almost anything, uh, anything you offer him. But without your help, mammon is often too lethargic to eat. You must provide him proper motivation. Regularly stimulate his appetite with healthy doses of insecurity. You can bring this home from a day's work, find it at a neighbor's house, generate it in your relationships, or borrow some from the day's news. Whenever fear is present, mammon will eat everything it needs. 
Number two, adjusting. Introducing mammon into your home requires careful planning and interest. Do so gradually in regular installments or over a 30 or 15 year period. Remember that when young mammon, uh, that young mammon often misappraises the purpose and value of his new home. He thinks of your home simply as a place to live and enjoy the company of others. Correct him patiently but firmly. One way to do this is by constantly expanding, renovating, and updating its spaces. Number three, sleeping. Mammon is semi-nocturnal, at best a light sleeper. You'll want to provide the softest bedding possible. This will often be your own bed. Check mammon before you go to sleep and immediately as you awake. Most caregivers acclimate to mammon's sleep cycle and learn to provide him companionship at regular intervals throughout the night. Four, training. Now, the greatest threat to discipline is inconsistency. You have one set of rules, your spouse has another. To prevent this from being a source of strife, make sure mammon understands early on that he is in charge and that everyone in the house will comply with his rules. And finally, five, exercise. Do not allow mammon to sit idly. This will not be good for it or for you. Regular exercise together will build your relationship. Take him for regular walks through your neighborhood. Take it on fabulous journeys. Let mammon show you just how much it can do for you. Grow in your ability to trust and love it. It's a very personal relationship. We nurture. It's a very complex relationship. We care for. We dote upon. Is everything okay? We look at our credit card statement, our 401k statement, our checkbook. It's the spirituality of money. And the first thing we see in the word mammon, Jesus describes, it's a personal relationship. The second aspect of mammon that describes the spirituality of money is more specific. It describes the kind of relationship that we have with our, our money. Because mammon, after all, is wealth that wins our core confidence. Wealth that wins our core confidence. I understand this from the meaning of the word mammon. Now, I told you it's a personal name, but it also has a meaning, just like some of our names have meaning. You know, grace is a personal name, but also uh, it has a meaning. And so with mammon also, it's an Aramaic word, as I described to you, and, and it's used quite properly here as wealth or money or possessions, all these things. It's what the word Aramaic mammon word mammon came to mean in the first century uh, Judaism. And yet most scholars believe that the history of the word, how it came to mean uh, money or wealth, is uh, otherwise. It didn't originally mean that. That it's related to the Hebrew word for trust or confidence. Literally the word to stand. It's related to the word that's familiar to us, amen. You can even hear it. Can you hear the similarity? Uh, mammon, amen. And so when we pray a prayer to God and we say at the end of it, amen, what we mean is, let that stand. Let that be the truth that describes my day, describes my week, describes my life. Amen, let it be. I want to stand on that. I want, I want that to be my trust. I want that to be my confidence. And so, in, in fact, the, the suggestion is that 
uh, Mammon used to refer to anything in which we had confidence, anything that was reliable for us. But over time, as uh, the history of this word developed, it seemed that more and more human beings found their uh, deepest trust and confidence in wealth, in possessions, uh, in money. And so uh, to say the thing that we trust in and to say wealth, it's really to say the same thing. And so it became called mammon. That is to say, then, that mammon is that which wins our core uh, confidence. And so I ask, what is it about us that makes mammon win our confidence? What is it about uh, us that makes mammon so attractive to us, our, our wealth? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that you and I are meant, if we believe the Bible's story, to live secure lives. We're meant to be secured, rooted and grounded, to stand upon God's faithfulness, the creator, the one who made us. That's the story of our lives. We're meant that way. But when we walk away or pull away or turn away from God, you see, then we discover ourselves to be insecure, vulnerable. When the Apostle Paul came to Athens, he went right to the heart of the uh, great academy of the ancient world in Athens, there on the Areopagus, and he stood and he had a lot of courage, Paul. He entered right into the uh, most intellectual, thoughtful people of the day in Greece, and he tried to make this point that we are made for God. And that our lives story, whether we realize it or not, of the pursuit of security in God to return back to our creator. Paul argues, Acts 17, God created all people so that they or we would search for God, perhaps even grope for him, but most of all, find him. That's why we're made to find God. Though indeed, Paul continues, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's the deepest truth about ourselves. In him you live and move and have your being. But when we try to deny this reality, we find ourselves exposed to fear and insecurity. This we see in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, they find immediately that the harmony God intends for their lives is ruptured. And all of a sudden, they're greatly out of sync. They're insecure and they're fearful. They're afraid of God now. God might come and judge them. God is insecure before God. It hardly seems right. They're, they're afraid now of one another. They fear one another's violence. There's this social rupture that occurs within the creation. And thirdly, they're afraid of their environment. Nature itself becomes a threat. And so we are insecure, out of sync, out of relationship, out of confidence with God. The New York Times a book review a few years ago, uh, a couple years ago, uh, wrote about Easter Everywhere, a book by Darcy Stanky. And the reviewer writes this, Stanky has dared to ask, what if my abiding sense of misery isn't due to abuse or bulky neurotransmission, but to the absence of God in my life? And then uh, Stanky goes on to quote in her book, uh, Simone Weil, who says this, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. 
If one denies God, one is worshipping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such, but in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. Ve is saying, this great 20th century French intellectual, that we may not think of ourselves as worshippers. We certainly don't think of ourselves as idolaters. We mock with the prophet, the, uh, those who worship idols. They say the, the idols, little figurines, they look personal, but they're not. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. They have noses they can't smell. They'll be destroyed. We throw them, when we're done with them, into the fireplace for a little bit of warmth. They says, no, we, we don't think of ourselves as idolaters, but whenever we take God out of the center of our lives, when we stop putting confidence and trust in God, we will turn to the things of this world. Inevitably, we will divinize them. We will ask of them the things that only God can do for us. And that's exactly what mammon is. It's wealth divinized. Wealth upon which we stand with our core confidence to get us through a day, a crisis, a week, a year, a life. Of course, the problem really isn't with money. Uh, the problem really isn't with being rich. In fact, while we quote the verse, money is the root of all evil, that's a misquote. That is not what the Bible says. If you look at 1 Timothy 6, you'll see verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's putting our confidence in, in it in an undue way, way that it's not designed to do. I told you last week, money in itself is a good thing insofar as it represents the goodness of God's creation and all of its potential. But when we put our hearts into it, then there's a problem. And so I just read to you the verses around uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, starting at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, of course, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. That's enough. It's great gain with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's a little elaboration, a little midrash that Paul is doing on this text of Jesus. Matthew 6, 24, he's describing the slavery that comes not from being rich, but from wanting to be rich when God hasn't made you rich. And so we see the core problem really is worry, it's fear, it's insecurity. And turning away from God to things to place our core confidence. Well, these two aspects of mammon give us the spirituality of money against which Jesus offers warning. And warnings are a good thing. Anyone who is a child knows that it's loving to give a warning of the risks that are out there, that they might find something which is safe. And yet Jesus doesn't give this teaching merely as a warning. He gives it as an invitation. He invites us to something so much more, something so much more sustaining and abundant than wealth. 
And so I come now to the third point, and that is a different image that Jesus offers us, a contrasting image to the image of mammon. And it is that of slavery. You notice, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other. And you think, that doesn't sound like an invitation to me. That doesn't sound like good news. But you have to understand what slavery meant to the Israelite mind. Uh, we tend to think of slavery more like the Greeks did. The ancient Greeks, the, as early as classical Greek philosophy, thought of slavery as uh, um, something that curtailed our natural potential. The definition of slavery, of course, is something that limits your freedom. And so in Greek philosophy, anything that would limit your freedom would limit your capacity to bloom into who you are supposed to be. But this is not the way the Israelites understood slavery. The Israelites, the question was not, are you slave or free? The question of freedom had to do with whose slave you were. As Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody. And the Israelites knew you were a slave to something or someone. And those who were free were free because they were enslaved rightly. Their experience of slavery, of course, comes out of the great story of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus, the Passover uh, celebration. And the Exodus story is that story in which Israel, they were slaves, the sons and daughters of Jacob in the land of Egypt. And the story of the Exodus is a story of a great contest between two masters, two lords, as the Greek says literally in Matthew 6.24. There's the lord of the Pharaoh who cared nothing for the Israelites, only wanted their productivity, their toil, more bricks, less straw. In the end, it would kill the Israelites. That was the motive of mammon or Pharaoh in Egypt. But one day the Lord came and said, I have heard the cries of my people. He speaks to Moses, his servant, and he says, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. That's an invitation to a slavery that is truly liberating. So Isaiah the great prophet would understand that Israel as a nation is the servant or slave. It's the same Hebrew word to the Lord, I am. Isaiah 41, but you, Israel, my servant, the Lord speaking, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. That's what the Exodus is all about. It's being slaved to one who always works for freedom who always is our helper, who always is by our side. And so Jesus says with joy, you can serve mammon, but there is another master available to you, waiting for you, standing by your side, ever inviting, no, persuading you, put your confidence in me. Have a personal relationship with the one who is ultimately trustworthy. The only one who is ultimately and eternally trustworthy. The richest man in Israel, 
King Solomon and the wisest, save for Jesus Christ, at one point in his life at least, would write in Ecclesiastes 5.10, The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity, emptiness, vapor that dissipates in the morning dawn. Toil all you want. Gain all the rewards that mammon can offer. You will find yourself empty in the morning, Solomon says. And yet, Jesus says, here I am. Everything that you and I think we can get from wealth, God wants to give to us as a gift. Security, freedom, fulfillment, a future, wholeness. Whatever money has promised you, whatever appeal it has made on my own heart, God says, let me, let me. I can do it. And in the morning, you will know joy, not emptiness. Stand on the promise of Jesus Christ. So we return to our initial question. How much is enough? Well, you notice Jesus hasn't given us an answer to the question that's quantifiable. He has given us an answer to the question that is relational, that is spiritual, that has everything to do with our relationship with one who loves us. The Lord who takes on the form of a servant to come and set us free. Do know that I am with you. Hebrews 13.5 was the verse we began with. Be content with what you have. Now let me read the verse in full. And you'll see how it is that we can be content with what we have. Hebrews 13.5 reads, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, For your Lord Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the feast of enough. I'm going to close with a, um, a little bit of writing by a man named Bob Perks, excerpted from something called I Wish You Enough. Bob Perks was recently in the airport and he overheard the parting of an elderly father and his daughter. And he relates the experience. Uh, they had announced her departure, and standing near the security gate, the father and the daughter hugged, and he said, I love you. I wish you enough. She in turn said, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough too, Daddy. They kissed, and she left. He walked over toward the window where I was. Standing there, I could see he wanted and needed to cry. I tried not to intrude on his privacy, but he welcomed me in, asking, Did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing it would be forever? Yes, I have, I replied, and I remembered expressing my love and appreciation to my father at the end of his life. Uh, forgive me for asking, I ventured, but why is this a forever goodbye? The old man replied, I'm old. She lives much too far away. I have challenges ahead. And the reality is, the next trip back will be for my funeral, he said. When you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask you what that means? 
He began to smile. Well, that's a wish that has been handed down from other generations. My parents used to say it to everyone. He paused for a moment and looking up as if trying to remember it in detail, he smiled even more. When we said, I wish you enough, we were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. He continued, and then turning toward me, he shared the following as if he were reciting it from memory. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that your smallest joys may appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. Let us pray. Father in heaven, every good and perfect gift comes to us from you. The greatest of all gifts is the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us his life. And in giving us his life, will not withhold from us any good thing. So we have confessed that sometimes we turn from this gift to find enough somewhere else or even more. Yet we recognize there is no more than in your love. Thank you that you are ever by our side, that you are ever faithful, that you are ever inviting us to place our trust again and again and again in you, in your care. May we know the joy of the feast of enough. And Father, as we give these gifts, may they be a profession of faith that we have been liberated, liberated from slavery to mammon. That this minor, minor deity means nothing any longer to us. That we can defile its worship by literally giving money away with joy. So in that spirit, we give today. And as we do so, we ask you to sweep in this collection, whether it be the widow's might or a great investment, that your spirit would go with these funds, blessing children, blessing those who are cold and need a cup of coffee and a warm hug, blessing those who do not yet know the hope and invitation of Jesus Christ here in the city of Seattle and around the world. That's our prayer, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name and we say it with confidence. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.